Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we are going to cover our most ancient ruler to date, Narmer, the man who united Upper and Lower Egypt and became the nation's first pharaoh. This show is always meant to be as historically accurate as possible. That's why I always give a heads up when we're dealing with information that's disputed. As you might imagine, this job of complete accuracy gets a bit difficult as we go much further back in time. Namrer ruled about 5,000 years ago. So yeah, sorry about a bit more, now we don't know for sure, interjections in this episode. As far as Egypt goes, which I'll get more into in a bit, there are a lot of rulers that tend to get a bit mythical the further in time we go back in history. There are also a lot of rulers, Narmer being one, whose actions are sometimes conflated with other rulers, both real and fictional. But I'm spoiling too much with even just that. We have a lot of information that needs to be explained before we even get to Narmer himself. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going way back in time to the late 4th millennium BCE in Narmer Unites Egypt. Probably. Before we can talk about how Narmer unified Upper and Lower Egypt, you should probably know what that even means. What exactly are Upper and Lower Egypt? The answer might actually surprise you because it's not as simple as Upper is Northern Egypt and Lower is Southern Egypt. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Upper Egypt is Southern Egypt and Lower Egypt is Northern Egypt. Why is it like this? Well, that's because the Nile River works a bit differently from most other major rivers in the world. While most rivers flow in a north-to-south direction, the Nile flows in a south-to-north direction. The source point of the Nile is much more disputed than most would probably think, but for the most part, its source is considered Lake Victoria in Central Africa. It then travels north and drains out into the Mediterranean Sea. Rivers follow the path that is downhill. It just so happens that downhill for most rivers means flowing south. It's possible for a river to flow in any direction. But enough about how water works. If you lived in ancient Egypt and did not know the modern distinction between north and south, it would make sense to base directions on the direction in which your major source of water is flowing. Therefore, upper in this case refers to an Egypt where the Nile flows into, and lower refers to the end of the Nile. We'll get more into what exactly differentiated these two lands later. The period of time we're dealing with at this point is called pre-dynastic Egypt. Once Narmer unified Upper and Lower Egypt, he would begin the first dynasty. There would go on to be 31 dynasties throughout ancient Egyptian history, with two more during the period of Greco-Roman rule over Egypt in the latter half of the first millennium BCE. The pre-dynastic era, essentially the start of Egypt as a culture, can trace its origins to the end of the Stone Age. Yeah, Egypt is old. Older than 
ancient Greece and most of the Mesopotamian empires. This period would last roughly from about 6000 BCE to 3100 BCE. Most archaeological excavations from this period are found in what would have been Upper Egypt. The end of the Nile at the Mediterranean, called the Nile Delta, has heavy silt deposits that would have long ago covered up any historical findings from Lower Egypt. The last millennia, give or take a couple centuries, of pre-dynastic Egypt saw the rise of what historians call the Nakata culture. This period from about 4000 BCE to around 3000 BCE saw the rise of Egyptian culture from a Stone Age society to some semblance of the great historical culture we know. The Nakata culture is divided into three periods, which are named Nakata 1, Nakata 2, and Nakata 3. That last one is where we begin to see the names of historical kings being used, mostly due to another major development during this period, hieroglyphs. Obviously, writing is an important development to bring any culture from nothing into prominence. We only have a few names of kings from Upper Egypt, but that's more than I can say for Lower Egypt. Though a list of kings of Lower Egypt was recorded in the 3rd millennium BCE, there is no actual evidence that any kings listed on it actually existed. On the other hand, we can prove the existence of at least a few rulers of Upper Egypt. Records for rulers of Upper Egypt begin around the same time as the beginning of Nakata III with a king named Elephant. Yes, that is his real name, and an incredible one at that. Though the name in ancient Egyptian might also be read as Pen-Abu. From then on, we have Bull, again, incredible. Scorpion One, Eerie Whore, also called Falcon, Ka, Scorpion Two, and finally Narmer. Now, as I said before, sometimes ancient kings get conflated with each other. There are many prevailing theories that Scorpion Two and Narmer were in fact the same person. Egyptian kings and pharaohs used many names, so this theory isn't coming out of nowhere. And that is not the only other name Narmer might have had. But I'm getting ahead of myself. It's time we finally dive into the story of how Narmer succeeded in forming one of the greatest ancient civilizations in all of history. As previously stated, Narmer ruled Upper Egypt, also known as the Land of Reeds or the Sedgeland. That name will be important later. Besides Scorpion, there is yet a second name of a king that historians think may actually be linked to Narmer. Menes, meaning he who endures. Before we had any sort of actual historical knowledge via artifacts and archaeological digs, Menes was the name often attributed to the king who unified Upper and Lower Egypt. This is mostly due to the fact that after a while, the ancient Egyptians just started adding the name Menes to their list of pharaohs, and those are the lists that survived throughout history. In the mythological stories of Menes, he received the role of pharaoh directly from Horus, 
the Egyptian god of kingship and the sky. And while I could go on and on about the stories of Horus, Royally Screwed is, after all, a show about actual rulers. But before we completely leave Horus behind for now, what is important about this story is that it would mean Menes would be the first human ruler of Egypt, as Horus and the previous rulers, according to mythology, were gods. Obviously, we now know that's a lie. I refuse to let you all forget that Upper Egypt once had a king named Elephant and Bull. But this story continuing to be told would make the name Menes incredibly important, overshadowing any other name this man had, whether it was Narmer, Scorpion II, or any other king that Menes might actually have been. Most stories about Menes can only be considered apocryphal, considering we can't even 100% say Menes and Narmer are the same person, let alone say anything attributed to Menes actually happened. A lot of stories we have that survived into modern day were recorded by Greek or Egyptian historians living in Egypt during Greek occupation. At this point, I could easily go into a tangent about the Greek historian Herodotus, but that might be a story for another time. One such story, though, is the founding of the Egyptian city of Crocodilopolis. Long story short, Menes was attacked by his pet dogs and ran away by crossing a river on the back of a crocodile. He founded a city on the other side, and that was the beginning of Crocodilopolis. You know, I'd love this story to be true, but archaeologists have discovered that the area around Crocodilopolis, which is the present-day city of Fayum, had been inhabited for at least a thousand years before the rule of Narmer. But in my dreams, I will see Minis riding the back of a crocodile like a glorious surfing god. Another story about Menes we know to be false is the founding of Memphis, a city in Lower Egypt. According to legend, Menes diverted the flow of the Nile and built the city for his son. Unfortunately, we know that Memphis also existed before the rule of Narmer because of a fairly recent archaeological discovery in 2012. A relief depicts the king Irihor, the pre-dynastic king after Scorpion I, visiting the city. Once again, sorry meanies. You can't have a crocodile surfboard or a feat of Herculean might. We'll get back to meanies once we actually get to the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt. But for now, let's bounce over to the next possible aspect of Narmer, Scorpion II. For the sake of this show, we will go along with the theory that Narmer and Scorpion II are in fact the same ruler. And in case you were wondering, Scorpion I and II were known as the Scorpion Kings, like the character played by The Rock in the Mummy movies. So who was Scorpion II? As I mentioned before, we at least have some historical proof that this guy existed. The main evidence we have for Scorpion II is an artifact referred to as the Scorpion Macehead. A macehead, as it implies, is the head of a mace, which is a blunt-headed weapon. This artifact, actually there are two maceheads, but for some reason both are just referred to as the Scorpion Macehead, 
was discovered back in the late 19th century by British archaeologists. I'll post pictures of both of them on the Twitter page. One of the mace heads, called the Major Scorpion Mace Head, depicts a king wearing the crown of Upper Egypt, named the Hejet. The crown of Upper Egypt was a long, white, mostly oval-shaped crown. Next to the king are a rosette and a scorpion, hence the name Scorpion II. However, because this is really the only evidence for his existence, but it's more evidence than I can even say for meanies, it shouldn't be valid to say that this artifact could not be depicting another king, which is where the theories of Narmer and Scorpion II really flourish. Both mace heads were dated as being made sometime in the late 4th millennium, around the same time as the rule of Narmer. The other mace head is called the Minor Scorpion Mace Head. It's smaller than the Major Scorpion Mace Head, hence the name. This artifact depicts an Egyptian king wearing the crown of Lower Egypt, called the Deshret. The Deshret is a tall red hat with a protruding ornamental piece that slightly resembles a coiled snake tongue. This mace head also has the same rosette and scorpion as the major scorpion mace head. The fact that a king was shown wearing both crowns is actually very important. Upper and Lower Egypt were two different nations. If you were a king of one, you were not the king of the other unless you had somehow managed to bring both nations together. Then, you would end up being both the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the one consistent throughline of Minis, Scorpion II, and Narmer. Other than the mace heads, another attested basis for the existence of Scorpion II are two tombs. One is located in the ruins of Abydos, and another near the ruins of Neken, the ancient capital of Upper Egypt. And, fun fact, an excavation in Neken discovered what we believe to be the world's oldest zoo. What was in an ancient Egyptian zoo? It's assumed they kept hippos, elephants, antelopes, baboons, and wildcats. But back to the tombs. Both tombs depict scorpions made of ivory. And that's kind of it. Is that flimsy evidence? Maybe, but it's better than nothing, which is more than I can say for crockboarding meanies. So why even bring up Scorpion 2 if the only evidence of him are two artifacts and maybe a tomb? It is precisely that. I'm not trying to prove that there was a king named Scorpion 2. The opposite, actually. All this evidence further points out the prevailing theory that this second Scorpion King was not real, but just another name for Narmer. But it is evidence that someone who ruled both Upper and Lower Egypt actually existed. At one point, both nations were separate and had to be brought together. <laughs> floated around theories for a while now, but it's time we actually got to the man of the hour, Narmer. So with the episode so far covering other names and apocryphal stories, let's get down to as much factual storytelling as we can. Who was Narmer? Well, believe it or not, based on the rest of the episode, we don't actually have that much information over the man himself. He ruled Upper Egypt either from Neken or Athenus. 
Neken, as you'll remember, is the location of one of the tombs attested to be the final resting place of Scorpion II. Thenus, on the other hand, was the capital of Egypt during the early dynastic period, so both are equally valid options for where Narmer was from. Like the Scorpion Macehead, there is a major relic associated with the reign of Narmer that heavily lends to the theory of Narmer uniting the two nations. This relic is called the Narmer Palette. It, also like the Scorpion Macehead, has two images depicting a king wearing the Hejet of Upper Egypt and the Deshret of Lower Egypt. The palette also has some of the earliest discovered hieroglyphs carved on it. One grouping of hieroglyphs spells the name Narmer. Both images on the palette seem to show a king conquering his enemies. Before it became accepted that Narmer and Menes were one and the same, there was a prevailing theory that Narmer attempted to unify the two nations peacefully, but Menes succeeded with war and conquest. This relic, however, seems to indicate that Narmer, in fact, joined the two nations via conquest. There are some signs that Upper and Lower Egypt may have already begun joining together before Narmer's rule. As I said back when talking about Menes, there are depictions that seem to be a record of pre-dynastic king Erihor visiting Memphis. Erihor, as far as I'm aware, has never been mentioned alongside the name Menes, so it's fairly safe to say that Upper and Lower Egypt were not completely united during his reign. During this time, Upper Egypt was the more urbanized of the two nations, with Lower Egypt taking advantage of the better soil of the Nile Delta to create a less advanced but still thriving agrarian society. This fertile land was probably the reason for Narmer's conquest of the Lower Kingdom. As the Upper Kingdom grew in population, it would need a stable source of food, one it could not find within its own borders. So... If you were hoping for some grand, noble reason for uniting two nations... Sorry? It is more than likely that Narmer and Upper Egypt were just looking to provide for the population and decided to take advantage of the weaker nation to its north. At least that is the prevailing theory. With Lower Egypt now under his control, Narmer officially became the first pharaoh of Upper and Lower Egypt. The term pharaoh is actually important. All pre-dynastic rulers of both Upper and Lower Egypt were referred to as kings. The term pharaoh is often only used to refer to the ruler of Egypt after the two kingdoms were united. As I've mentioned, pharaohs can have many names, but they also have many titles. Among those titles are Lord of the Two Lands and Of the Sedge and Bee. Do you remember how I called Upper Egypt the Sedge Land? Sedge is a family of flowers, among which is the papyrus. The Sedge was the symbol of Upper Egypt. And going from that, the Bee was the symbol of Lower Egypt. I don't know why I couldn't find out. If someone does know, please tell me. Pharaohs further showed this unity with their choice of headwear, the skent. This headwear was quite literally the hejet and the deshret joined together in one single crown. Now, Narmer was probably never referred to as Pharaoh during his own lifetime. In fact, 
it would not be commonplace for a ruler to use the name Barrow until almost 2,000 years after Narmer's death. Nonetheless, the idea of ruling over two united kingdoms is so ingrained into the idea of being a pharaoh that it only makes sense that the man who is responsible for that unification gets to hold the title, even if it's posthumously. So, what do you do after uniting two kingdoms? Well, there are a few facts about Narmer's tenure as pharaoh as there are about his time as king of Upper Egypt. It is thought that he married a princess from the Egyptian city of Nakata named Nithotep. This marriage was likely to provide further unity for the cities of Upper Egypt. Nithotep and Narmer had a son who would go on to be the second pharaoh, Hor-Aha. Hor-Aha is also thought to be a candidate for the identity of Menes, but more historians agree that Menes was Narmer. After Narmer's death, but before Horaha took the throne, some believe that Nithotep may have ruled over Upper and Lower Egypt due to the fact that her tomb is massive and very elaborate for a pharaoh's wife. Besides his family, Narmer is known for having greatly formalized and instituted beliefs for the ancient Egyptian religion. Religious symbols such as the Ankh became much more commonplace during his rule. He also continued his conquest both to the north and south, taking control of both Canaan, the area on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, and Nubia, a region constituting southern Egypt and northern Sudan. If we are to take any of the Menes legends as truth, Narmer's rule was quite prosperous. His citizens, with more resources available at hand, were able to work less and enjoy new hobbies such as sports, art, gardening, and even brewing beer. An ancient Greek writer named Diodorus Siculus makes the very bold claim that Menes invented the concept of luxury. Menes' rule is recorded as being 62 years long, so let's just say that's how long Narmer actually ruled. An impressive feat nonetheless, considering ancient living. So how does the reign of a man with many identities end? Well, if we're going by Narmer or Scorpion 2, we don't know. So once again, we will rely on Menes. Legend says that Menes was killed by a hippo. That might sound weird unless you know two pieces of information. One, hippos are terrifying. Seriously, they might look like chunky creatures, but those things will tear apart anything that gets in their way. The second piece of information, which makes more sense now that you know the first part, is that in ancient Egypt, hippos were a symbol of chaos. So whether we're supposed to take his death by hippo as literal is kind of up to you. I'd like to think it's true just because I'm imagining Narmer surfing on the back of a crocodile getting mauled by a hippo. Even though facts over Narmer are scarce, it is undeniable that his accomplishments in his life, uh, accomplishments here technically meaning conquest and war, helped set up one of the oldest and greatest nations the world has known. Perhaps one day we'll get the full truth of his rule as the first pharaoh, but for now, we're just left with the story of a man with many names. 
this will probably be the furthest back we go and royally screwed for quite some time. As I said at the top of the episode, things start getting very hazy once you go several thousand years back in time. A lot of stories end up getting mixed with mythology, and you end up with less historical evidence than we have for Narmer. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Next time, we're going from one great ancient civilization to another with Egypt's northern neighbor Greece, where you'll get to learn about a man named Pericles and his role in the democracy of Athens. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 